0: I, unfortunately, have had this situation happen in other areas. People sometimes don't pay you what you're owed. And you get a little jaundice to that, but this was the ski business. Everybody else in the ski business worked so hard to help Titus. They worked so hard to uh, you know, keep us in business and make us a better business. It's a fraternity unlike any other industry I've ever seen. And so when Liftopia, who was a big partner of ours in that fraternity, put the knuckles to us, it, it did. It felt like you were betrayed.
1: Welcome to The Storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I've got more New York skiing for you today. But before we get to that, a reminder to click over to stormskiing.com to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter. Also, follow The Storm on Twitter, at Storm Ski Journal. In case you didn't know, The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're a longtime listener or you follow me on Twitter, you know that current owner and editor Mike Rogie brought this thing back from the ashes. Mountain Gazette was dormant for years when he bought it in 2020 with a new vision. A supersized format, incredible photography, high quality storytelling, and a global scope. Issue 195 dropped on my doorstep the other day, and all I can say is, if you didn't get yours, you made a mistake. You've got a photo feature on Alta Spring Skiing, an interview with the governor of New Hampshire, a deep look at last year's fires out west, including some absolutely shockingly good photography, and much, much more. There's nowhere else that you're gonna find this eclectic mix of content in this kind of format. Look, we told you that issue 194 would sell out, and it did, demand for the magazine is high, but if you subscribe now, you may still get issue 195. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EastCoast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go hire. Episode 47, Bruce Monet Jr., co-owner of Titus Mountain, New York. As a lot of you know, I hit New York hard this past season. At first, I was bummed to be shut out of Vermont, but it may have been one of the best things that ever happened to me ski-wise. I hit 20 new-to-me ski areas around New York. One of them was Titus. This is a great hill. A great hill. Way, way bigger than you expect it to be spread across three peaks, and it has a lot of really fun trails. The place isn't going to blow your doors off from a challenge point of view, but that's not what Titus is all about. It's a family ski area, and if you want a place where you can let your kids wander safely while you put back a couple brews at the base lodge, there may not be a better ski area in America. For the past decade, the ski area has been run by the Monet family, who had zero experience in the ski business prior to buying the mountain. Frankly, they're killing it. To find out how they're doing that, I wanted to talk to one of the central players running the place. Let's do it. My guest today is the co-owner of Titus Mountain, New York. Titus features 50 trails and glades spread across three peaks on a 1,200-foot vertical drop. The mountain has been voted the number one family-friendly ski resort in North America. With his family, he owns several additional businesses, including Adirondack Energy, a chain of local convenience stores, a pub and grill, and a local Holiday Inn Express franchise. Bruce Monet Jr. is my guest. Bruce, so good to have you on the program today. Thank you for having me, Stuart. So Bruce, you didn't come up in the ski business. You actually have been a successful serial entrepreneur and you run several businesses up there in the Adirondacks. Tell us about your personal and professional background and the businesses that you and your family run.
0: Well, the key word there, honestly, is family. Uh, I've got two brothers and all three of us have wives in the business and uh, we complement each other very well. My middle brother was a certified public accountant with Coopers and Lybrand, which means he knows books and banking. My youngest brother's got the world's best personality. He's uh, very good at making sure the wheels don't come off the bus and it's it's worked over the years so how'd you get
1: started what was your first business
0: the first business was just a simple 1979 international dt 66 oil truck that uh, i would pedal house to house back when i was a tight a young boy you still have that truck i we do still have that truck only because i won't let anybody get rid of it
1: (laughs) so you're going house to house bruce and you know For some people, that's enough. That's it. What gave you the vision to say, all right, we're going to turn this into a thing. This is going to be a a broader business. We're going to expand this.
0: Yeah, it's uh, just sort of in our DNA, I guess, is the best way to explain it. But getting uh, getting my brother on board, he was a little younger than me. So he had to go through college and he had to get some real world experience. But uh, my the smartest move was lobbying very hard to get him to leave uh, Syracuse and the Carrier Dome, and come back to Malone, New York, and uh, help us grow. And as you can see, we, it made a lot of sense.
1: So you're doing that first that business, that truck, the oil truck. What was your, how did you start branching out into other businesses, and what are those other businesses?
0: Well, we do. You, you mentioned we have a chain of convenience stores. Energy is our primary business unit. We're a home heater. We bring fuel and uh, propane mainly up here. is a very big propane market fuel oil, propane. We've got some really cool little gas stations in the North Country that have a Dunkin' Donuts or a Kentucky Fried Chicken in there, so they're very, very popular with the community. We use those locations to to cross-market and promote Titus and every other unit we have, so it it sort of works together.
1: So what's the scale of that empire, Bruce? Are you mostly focused there, concentrated in the Upper Aterodiacs?
0: Yeah, about from Watertown to just below uh, Plattsburgh. That's sort of our territory of operation right now, and we're very happy with that.
1: So have you always been
0: a skier? Well, I was uh, always a skier, yes. I was a weekly skier, both W-E-E-K and W-E-A-K. I wasn't like you guys by any stretch of the imagination, but... It was very important for me to get my kids out on the hill at least once a week. And I was typically a Thursday night skier with some bacon cheeseburgers and fries at the lodge.
1: Oh, you can't beat that. Have you, did you grow up there in Malone and have you always skied Titus?
0: Yes, I, I grew up here in Malone and Titus uh, would be my home mountain. And it's basically the only place I've ever really skied, as silly as that sounds
1: have you taken a day trip anywhere else maybe whiteface or 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 is that just titus is your home you know it and you love it
0: i take a ton of day trips to whiteface but not to ski i go up there and uh we we know some of the people that work up there and they'll help us if we have an equipment issue or something but no i've not skied whiteface since i was a kid i did ski uh pico when i was like 17 and i still remember Mm -hmm. that but I don't have a very strong uh, repertoire of ski mountains, that's for sure.
1: So you love Titus. You've been skiing your whole life. You established a bunch of successful businesses. And in 2011, Paul Augustine, longtime owner of Titus, passed away. So take us through this, Bruce. How did you come to own Titus uh, after, after Mr. Augustine died? So I believe he died a few years
0: before 2011. I've not ever been able to really find out. We actually bought it through a federal estate judge. And uh, the people that were running the mountain, they had reached out to us a number of times to buy it because of our other holdings and because of the hotel. And they just thought if it made sense to anybody, it would make sense to us. And we were always very gracious, but we demurred. And we, we said, no, no, we're... Our hands are full. Good luck. But then uh, our dispatcher actually for the trucking company got a call and they wanted a price to bring the main chairlift and a bunch of the snow guns down to a mountain in Pennsylvania. So I said that was either one of the smartest business ploys in the history of mankind or they were really going to whack this mountain up and it'd be gone forever. So it was as simple as that. We, we reached out to a local realtor uh, who is also a ski patroller for, I believe, like 45 years at Titus Mountain. And he put the deal together and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: So was there a danger then that once you move that lift and that snowmaking equipment off the mountain, a lot of times that's a death knell, was the fear that once they took that off, that the mountain would shut down and there would be no way to operate it.
0: Oh, it wasn't only a fear. That was a 100% conclusion. Every, every season that they opened up in those years was sort of like, Hey, they made it another year. So we knew if they took out their primary chair and their, their snowmaking equipment wasn't really the best to begin with. If they started selling uh, used snowmaking equipment to Pennsylvania, the gig was over.
1: And are you talking about that triple chair on the main hill?
0: Yes, the triple chair in the main hill. They wanted a rate to bring that down to Pennsylvania on a flat bunch of flatbed trailers. And we knew if that went out of there, Titus would never come back.
1: I mean, how fortunate is it, Bruce, that that call came through your dispatcher? I mean, there's no shortage of trucking companies. They could have used an outfit out of Pennsylvania. They could have done any number of things. Do you almost think that that was kind of uh, meant to be? Kismet, you know, like I said, I I believe in coincidences to a
0: certain degree, but yes, you know, we were in the book under uh, trucking companies, Malone, New York, so it made sense for them to to check with us. But uh, you're right; thank God they called us instead of calling somebody else.
1: So you get a hold of the mountain. Um, What do you do then? I mean, skiing is tough. You know, one thing I've realized, Bruce, from doing this podcast is I don't want to know in a ski area. That's a lot of work. It's it's intensive. It's it's hard. It's there's so many variables. Um, tell us about that. What did you do after you bought it to to figure out which way it was up and, and and how to run a ski area?
0: It is intensive. It is hard. It's also very rewarding if you do it right. And, uh, you know, that means a lot, too. But the the we closed on this mountain November of 2011. And the uh, the deal was these guys were were pretty good. They kept their clothes or cards pretty close to their chest. They didn't want us to tour the mountain. They didn't want us really kicking around the lodges or doing too much because they were worried their staff would get wind that the mar- mountain was going to be sold. And I do think that that was mainly ruse, but anyway, we couldn't get into any of the buildings or even, uh, you know, look, look inside any of the garages or anything until after we had already closed on the property and, <laughs> When we did get a chance to get inside there, it was, there was no take backs.
1: Uh-oh. Hey, what did you find? What, what shape were the was the snowmaking system in? How about the groomers, the buildings, the lifts? What, what, did, what did you find when it was yours? They gave you the keys, and, and they got out of there.
0: Well, the, the probably the biggest asset that they left us was the people. Uh, there was a lot of guys that had been holding on to Titus Mountain, locals, that were trying to make do with whatever they had left in their arsenal, whether it was the old LMC groomer, uh, you know, the snow guns that were at their third mountain by now, there was, and we didn't know anything. I mean, we were getting ready to go into December and uh, we we didn't know anything about anything, but uh, we just limped through that year, came up with a plan and started, you know, remodeling and upgrading the mountain in earnest in, uh, April of 2012.
1: And you know that, that Bruce, that echoes a story I heard from Charles Jefferson, who's the owner of Montage Mountain down in Pennsylvania. Uh, and he's a businessman and he's a real estate developer and he bought Montage when it was in similar duress to what Titus was. And, and he didn't know anything about running a ski area. And I said, well, did you reach out to folks in the industry? What did you do? And he said, no, I talked to the people who worked there. And that was our best asset. And that's it's echoing what you just said. Uh, in addition to that, though, I am curious. Did you reach out to other folks in the industry, uh, ski areas of New York, other ski area operators, just to get a sense of how they did things and, and maybe get some ideas about how you could run the area?
0: We we honestly did
1: not because
0: uh, we had an ace in the hole, if you will. We We had a local ski legend he's still there today zach white he lived he grew up literally at the base of the mountain he had worked at titus since he was 16 he had a falling out with management uh you know for the estate of paul augustine and uh you know but mainly it was it was over the way they were running the mountain so he had left but we knew he was real close by and he was dying to come back so uh after we bought uh the mountain we we had the best of both worlds we had the guys that were there keeping it running these years in the really lean times and we had uh you know our michael jordan ace in the hole (coughs) coming back in to uh, lead the troops to the top of the mountain if you will
1: and what role is he playing on the mountain today
0: he, well, he runs it. I mean, he's a general manager. You know, he's not the kind of guy who's going to book you a wedding in June. Okay. Or uh, help put the pepperoni on the pizza for the kids tubing party, but he knows every inch of the mountain, every pipe, every outlet. Uh, he was there to cut in the trails. He built some of the ski lifts there. Uh, he really knows it well. And his wife works with him in the office and his son runs our rental program. So, It's,
1: uh, it's pretty neat. So with that team in place, heading into your first winter, uh, were there times, did did you feel pretty good about the way it went or or were there times when you were like, okay, skiing's tough. I maybe in over our head here. How did that progress? You know, it's been a decade now and you have some time to reflect on this and I'm I'm sure you'd say you learned a lot. Uh, but, but how did you feel getting used to it? And and did you ever feel like it was too much, uh, in, in those first years?
0: Yeah, I mean the first year in particular was the worst because we were just offering an experience, a, a, a total overall guest experience that went exactly opposite of every other business unit we ever ran. We, you know, you know we were just barely hanging on that first year, and it was terrible to see, uh, you know, <clears throat> us actually charging for the kind of experience we were providing. We We use that as motivation to make sure that would never happen again. And we've been working on that principle ever since.
1: You know, I I think, you know, you might not have had a lot of knowledge of the ski industry in particular. However, you were a successful businessman and and you were a successful business family. And I have to think there are some skills that are transferable. I have to think, you know, for one thing, you have to be pretty good at logistics with the other businesses you're doing. Uh, You definitely had experience managing people, uh, inventory, inventory. you know, managing a budget, uh, dealing with the Adirondacks weather is certainly nothing that was, that was strange to you. Um, how, what, but I'm curious from your point of view, Bruce, what were the skills that you had built up running your other businesses that you found transferred really well to, to running Titus? Where wasn't there a learning curve? There,
0: honestly, skiing is very similar to every other business. It's a people business. You know, it's you are asking people to give you money they work hard for to enjoy themselves, and that's what they want. And you've, you've got to build a team and hire the people that know that we're in the guest experience business. I don't care if you're going in to get a pack of gum at one of our stores or a pint of beer at our pub. You have to have the people that – Give the customer the treatment that they deserve and we focus on that constantly and every time we're we're able to sing our praises, we give our people all the credit. It's the people that are in the front lines. Those are the people that make, make Titus successful, make our other business units successful. They get the credit.
1: Sounds like you have a great team there, Bruce, and, and that's a great starting point. So let's go back to the mountain itself and the infrastructure that you inherited, the cats, the the snowmaking, the lifts, the lodges. What did that look like in 2011? And what does it look like today? What have you and your family done to invest in the mountain and improve that skier experience?
0: So when we bought it, it looked a little bit like Cambodia. I mean, everything was uh, as upside down as you could humanly possibly imagine. Our, our wives, you know, we finally got in the lodge. They're like, "Hey, uh, you, you know, have you been in the ladies' bathroom here?" The ladies' bathroom was—I'm serious—it was just you couldn't turn around in a lot of the stalls. It, everything was was just uh, in in pretty bad shape. The, the as I say, the snowmaking guns—they were. We had got them from a mountain called Brody. I don't know if you mm-hmm. ever heard of that one. But, uh, they were all logoed. And I thought, you know, my brothers and I thought, these are Brody snow guns. Like they were the manufacturer. They weren't. They were from Brody like 20 years before that. The uh, the groomers, they one could work if it was uh, over 30 degrees. One would work, but it was under th-
1: 15 degrees.
0: <laughs> so we had a lot of stuff we had to try to figure out there that first year.
1: Yeah, Brody's down there in Massachusetts. I, I hosted Brian Fairbank, um, who who owns Jiminy Peak, which is right down the road. And he actually had bought Brody off of the former owner and ended up deciding that two ski areas that close together could not um, work and it was not sustainable. So he closed down Brody. Um, still runs Jiminy Peak, but that's that's a really interesting tidbit that those those snow guns went up to to Titus. Uh, so so that's the infrastructure you took over. What have you done to improve it?
0: Oh, literally everything, soup to nuts. You know, the first summer we knew we had to build a a new lodge, and we did. We built as much of a new lodge as we could. We uh, were in New York State, so once you get to a certain size, you had to offer sprinklers in the building, which was going to be a million bucks. So we got just to the threshold where we did not have to put in sprinklers, but uh, we built a, hopefully you saw, a, a pretty nice lodge there at the base area. That's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then uh, we just started. Literally, there's new pumps, new pump house. We <coughs> pump houses, I'm sorry. We used the company out of Vermont to weld some pipe for us. We put new pipe in the ground, uh, bought new uh, groomers from Bill Brandt at Mohawk Industrial Works. We got uh, new snow guns from SMI. Uh, we just had to keep plucking away at it until we get got to a place the last couple, three years. We figured, you know what, we're, we're legitimate now. We could, uh, we could compete with the best of them, and I firmly believe that.
1: Yeah, I was up there in February, Bruce, and I have to say the place is in great shape. Skied great. Skied from border to border. Uh, that is a big ski area. Uh, talk about some of the challenges of operating a mountain of that size
0: yeah it is i mean it's it's got a lot of size to it and that can be uh, an advantage or a disadvantage depending on the day if we have an issue at one one part of the mountain we we have the ability to sort of throw people to the other side but there's there's just it's a we say this all the time. It's a good thing people don't have a chance to listen to the radio communication on the mountain because, uh, you know, it'd be, wait a minute here.
1: <laughs> so the entire ski area is not open every day. Uh, take us through this schedule. It, it, it sort of alternates which lifts and which peaks. So take us through that and, and how you determine when to open what.
0: Yeah, uh, that that is a has been a byproduct of the years we've been in business, and from listening to our regulars, our diehard skiers and ski patrol, and they came up with this uh, rotating schedule, which we've been on now for two years, and everybody seems to like. We open uh, the main chair every day. We open one side of the mountain Monday, uh, another side Tuesday, back mon- uh, back Wednesday, so we just rotate it. Uh, Just basically on calendar days, that's it.
1: So you have three peaks there. You have the main mountain there rising up from the lodge. Then you have the mid-mountain. Then you have the upper mountain, which I believe is only open weekends and holidays. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then all the holidays, holiday weeks or whatever.
1: That's a pretty nice chunk of terrain. The way I understand it, that is actually available for private rentals. Talk about that business.
0: Yeah, I'd love to talk about that business if we had rented it once, but we haven't, so I can't. We just really tried to do that in a more meaningful way last year. Uh, we called it Own the Upper, and we thought it would be, uh, we thought it would maybe be popular, but we just don't have the population center here. Uh, I don't think yet, with the border being closed in, uh, in Canada, that. Uh, we could rent the mountain, that upper mountain out. But we are going to try and do it in a more meaningful way this season.
1: Yeah, I think there maybe it's just a matter of getting the word out, Bruce. I, I, Laszlo Vete down at, at Platykill has had a lot of success with private mountain rentals. And um, Jeff Hathaway over at Magic Mountain has been experimenting with it, too. And and also Pico does it. Um, and And I think that's that's upper mountain is a really nice chunk of terrain. I really like it. So so maybe once you get the word out a little bit more, hopefully that'll take off for you.
0: Yeah, I heard Laszlo on your podcast and talking about how good it was for him. And there's no reason why we can't do it. We just uh, we had so many other irons in the fire up until recently. It maybe didn't uh, get the priority it should have, but that's the direction we're headed now.
1: Yeah, and Laszlo also has an ace in the hole, and that he's less than three hours from New York City. So that's (laughs) that's a pretty big market.
0: Yeah, and that was the market that uh, kept us. Humming all winter. I'm hope hopefully when you were there we had a busy day. It, it
1: well it was it was actually perfect. It was busy, but I never had to wait in the lift line, which is my favorite kind of <laughs> uh, ski day. When when there's a lot going on, and the in and the mountain feels alive. But but you ski right onto the lift. It, it was it, it the mountain's so big it spreads people out. I was there on uh, President's Day that Monday. So you had all three peaks open and it, it skied great. And it, we had to do snow that day. We hadn't had a, a, a refreeze in a month. So the snow was in terrific shape. So I had a pretty much a perfect day there.
0: Well, that's good music to my ears. And honestly, uh, without sounding like a cheese ball, there's never really a lift line at Titus. That's one of the things that we we w- wish we could get like a five minute lift line or a 10 minute lift line, but we we're we're still working on it.
1: No, it's it's a good thing, and I think it speaks to the intelligence of the lift network and how that spread out. So let's let's talk a little bit about that lift network. You didn't, you know, you mentioned some of the upgrades you made to snowmaking. Uh, all the chairlifts, though, have been there for quite a long time. You have a fleet of hall lifts. I believe most of those dates to the early '90s. Um, those are pretty famously reliable lifts. So that's not a brand that that is in business anymore. It was bought by a larger company. Uh, but but what's your assessment of that lift system, Bruce? Are you pretty happy with it? We have been through. Every lift, every one of the hall lifts,
0: and we've done it with uh, a rapid pace because uh, Larry Woolham. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, he services our lifts and he's getting up there in age. We want him We want him in good shape, KC, eh, that happens to Larry.
1: <laughs> well, I wish Larry the best. Do you have an upgrade wish list? Are there any lifts that you would like to replace eventually?
0: We, we took out, uh, you know, the glove rippers there, the handle toes and different things on the learning center. So we put in, we've got a couple carpets now that have worked really good for us. Hopefully you got a chance to see the tubing part. But yeah. uh, it's, uh, our lifts are where they are. They are what they are. And they've, they've served us very well. You know, we don't really get too many complaints or comments about the lifts. Maybe they're a little... A little slow, but uh you know, the ride up is pretty nice.
1: So maybe maybe I'm reading this wrong. On your trail map, it still shows a lift over Hell's Kitchen, which I believe was a T-bar. I don't know if that's in operation anymore. Can you just talk about the lifts on that side of the mountain? Nope, that lift is there. We used that the
0: first uh year we were in business. Uh the uh, the people that had, that that founded Titus came up with a very ingenious method of naming their lifts. They stood at the bottom of the mountain, and the one way to the right was chair number one, and then they went two, three, four, all the way to the upper mountain. So that would be our chairlift number two, and it is yes. it's
1: a hall double. Mm-hmm. That one's still running. It wasn't running the day I was there. I believe I was riding chair one. I just didn't see any chairs on it, but it's still operable. Yeah, we have not used it for years
0: because basically uh the chair right next to a chair one services is the
1: same terrain. Okay. Is there a chance you would ever turn that on or maybe relocate it to another part of the mountain? Or is that are you just kind of done with that lift? No, chair if chair? we could get a five minute lift line, uh <laughs> we would flare that back up. A B, we've kept it
0: there. Because, uh, as I said, a lot of the guys that still work on the mountain to this day were, were back when some of these haul lifts went in, and there's been uh, discussion. Typically, after six or seven beers, about taking that chair lift and uh, moving it and putting in some uh, home sites at the very base of the mountain by the river there. So that's why she's still there.
1: Okay. So so it would go from the river and then where would that lift let off if you if you were to relocate it with the right at right the uh, right at the
0: bottom of uh that chair, one that you skied on that side of the mountain. Oh, that would be
1: that would be really cool.
0: Yeah, I I think so too. And uh, you know, we every year we inch a little bit clo- closer to making that a reality and hopefully uh before the not too distant future we can figure something out like that.
1: All right. You let me know as soon as you do, Bruce, and I'll, uh, I'll do a little write up. I love that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when I was up there skiing, I, I, I was skiing with uh, Peter Landsman, who is the founder of LiftBlog, uh, which is just a terrific site that has inventoried just about every lift in the United States. Um, it's, it's really exhaustive. And, and he was there inventorying your lifts. And he pointed out to me that there's a mailbox at the bottom of each chairlift. Uh, we're wondering what the story is there. That's a good story. That uh, those mailboxes are for our uh, poker run. We
0: uh, we fill those mailboxes with cards, playing cards in in a sealed envelope and a skier has to visit every lift, take an envelope from the mailbox, bring it back to the lodge. We open the envelopes there and the best poker hand uh wins $20,000.
1: Oh, I love that. I, I'm, I'm familiar with that with uh, motorcycles, but I've never heard of anyone doing it with skiing. That's that's really cool. Uh, when, it? You, they don't win $20,000. They win a uh,
0: picture beard and large pizza.
1: <laughs> well, uh, we can say it's twenty grand if you want to try to drive people up there, uh, Bruce. When do you do that? We do it
0: a couple different times a year, like uh, Mountain Madness and uh, Family Fun Day. And we do it for, what you know... Prior to this season, we had three or four days, mainly for the kids and the families. We'd, uh, we'd blow off fireworks, and we'd have the pond skimming and the penguin paddle. And we did all sorts of crazy stuff like that, and the poker run was part and parcel of those events.
1: I tell you, my daughter would absolutely love that. And I think she would really like Titus. So I'm going to put that on my calendar for next year. So what one of the first upgrades you did, Bruce, when you took over the mountain is you cut 15 new trails, including 11 glades, which I believe was either limited or non-existent officially at Titus before that. I'm a big fan of glades personally. What made you decide to prioritize developing that sort of terrain?
0: Well, we were new owners in a new business, and we had a lot of uh, well-minded, passionate people that... Uh, have been trying to get Titus to move off the snide of no glades for a long time. And so when we took over, I got to tell you, there was times we were emptying the suggestion box every other day. We had a <laughs> lot of people tell us what we should be doing up there, and um, a lot of ideas did pan out, and the glades are, the glades are one of them. We, we had an enormous call for tree skiing.
1: One of the things that you did that I really like and really appreciate as someone with little kids who I'm teaching how to ski is you didn't just thin your steep stuff for glades. You thinned a lot of blue glades, a lot of green glades, which that progression is really important because I I feel like the art of tree skiing is, is not as as widely adopted as it could be because people just can't jump into double black diamond glades. It's too hard. You know, you're, you, you can't fly down that steep of terrain and die trees at the same time and figure out how to do it. But by having those green blue glades, you can you can progress up. And if you have your little kids, you can take them through. What made you decide to say, okay, this is not just for the pedal to the metal experts. This, this is for everybody. This is for families. We want them to be able to enjoy it. We have the natural snowfall. We're in the Adirondacks. Let's make it accessible to everyone. What made you decide to do that?
0: So, you know, often when I'm asked, the biggest change we made at Titus is I tell people the height of the skier. We brought the average height of the skier at Titus Mountain to between three and a half and four feet. You know, we just we we knew uh, we we were who we were. We weren't going to compete with some of these giants. We wanted to be a family mountain. And, uh, you know, the kids just love the trees. They love playing around in the trees and. And so uh again, with a lot of help from good patrollers and longtime pass holders, they gave us some suggestions. They they literally picked the, the trail location and we worked together to make it work.
1: Yeah, my, my kids for one love it. Uh so where could we see more glades on the mountain, Bruce? And if so, where?
0: Yeah, we're cutting uh we're cutting one in again this this summer. So the the logger is already on the mountain working away, and that's going to be off Maple. So it'd be skiers left of Maple. We're putting a little trail in there, and that's also going to feed it uh, to uh, feed some skiers to some of the lots we're trying to sell in that area.
1: Well, that's really nice. So so uh, skiers left of Maple Run. Yes. Okay. So, super. And so you're bringing in loggers to do that. Do you, do you do any uh kind of volunteer days. I know like Laszlo does that down at Platykill to help clear out in the in the uh, summertime or do you or do you just use professionals for that? We had a volunteer
0: day the first year we started and we offered everybody free beer and chicken wings and we figured out it was gonna be a hell of a lot cheaper to pay people.
1: <laughs> so what's your potential footprint there, Bruce? Do you have room to expand if you wanted to? I'm not sure how much property you own and, and if there's potential to cut more trails. Uh, on the on the land you own?
0: Yeah, there is. It's got a big footprint. You know, there's a thousand acres there in total. We've got 200 of them just sitting there waiting at the very top of the upper mountain. Uh, it's a plateau. I walk it all the time. Our guys are in there. It's some of the, it's just, just outside the blue line for the Adirondack Park, which means we can do whatever the hell we want within reason. <laughs> and it's just some really Pristine, nice property. And in the back of our mind, we've got the idea to do something with that eventually.
1: And where is that in relation to the current trail map? If I'm looking at the upper mountain, I have Outer Drive or outer outer on the far skier's right and far skier's left you have some green circle terrain where where would it be in relation to those runs
0: so if you go up the chairlift you get off the chairlift just keep going straight ahead just forward it's right at the end of the chairlift there's a whole plateau up there that's just it's beautiful I think they grew hops there at one time or something but it's uh, it's some very nice land
1: what would the vertical drop be there Bruce
0: well, that's the same I mean for skiing uh Stuart it's flat this would be this would not necessarily be for skiing. It'd be for uh ski and ski out that you mentioned there earlier.
1: oh, nice, so you would just have to build a road up there, or do you have a road already
0: we're We're working on a road we've got roads we can get our vehicles up there, but unless you're a really good driver uh you're
1: gonna need a little bit more help so what would it take to make that happen
0: uh time. You know, some more time, uh, mainly. Uh, everybody seems to be pressed for that. But it is something that we've identified that could be a big potential for Titus going forward.
1: So you mentioned night skiing earlier, that that's you You were a Thursday night skier. And, and you do have night skiing on the mountain, which, which I, I find strangely uh, rare in New York State. Uh, but I'm glad you offer it. Are you happy with your night skiing footprint, or would you like to expand that?
0: Well, again, since we brought the average height of the skier down, night skiing used to be called buzzed skiing at Titus. I mean everybody was up there <laughs> partying like rock stars and those days are over. You know, there's uh we don't have Uber up here. We we strongly don't encourage anybody to be driving. So the kids again love night skiing. It's a great, you know, great babysitter for a lot of parents that want to go out and have themselves a meal <clears throat> like table four two ish. And the kids come up there on Friday and Saturday nights and I I don't know if you had a chance to see our night skiing, but there's a lot of young people
1: having a really good time. Titus is is remote. And I think one of the solves for that is to build up some lodging infrastructure. And you have a partnership with your Holiday Inn Express that you own. um, And you also have some lodging built around the mountain. And and you just mentioned you want to build a lot more. Talk about what you have in place now, Bruce, and what what your eventual vision is for ski and ski out properties there on Titus.
0: So uh, I listened to your podcast with Scott Brandy and I got to remind him, you know, he's like, there's not an awful lot to do in this area outside of skiing. And uh, literally three miles from Titus mountain is a Robert Trent Jones designed 36 hole PGA championship course. The, the guy who ran the uh, course forever and ever was Derek champ, uh, Sprague. And he was the PGA president. It's an incredible golf course. And, uh, people, mainly Canadians, come down by the thousands every summer to play. So that's that was the number one demand generator for the Holiday Inn Express pre-COVID was Canadian golf packages. So we feel we've got the ability to uh, offer some golf packages in the summer as well as some ski packages in the winter.
1: What about the property you have built up on the mountain and, and already what you have in place and what you would like to build up?
0: So every, you know, again, we've been picking at it, every new property we've put on there has gone, uh, has just, has done very well, better than expectations. So we keep adding more and more and, uh, you know, eventually we're going to have to realize we need to do it in a meaningful way because two, three, four units a year just, just are not going to, uh, not going to get the job done.
1: So one of the more interesting features of Titus as I was riding up the main mountain lift is is the extensive maple syrup operation you have running through all of the tree islands there. Talk a little bit about that business and and the breadth of it. That's a
0: direct uh, reflection of us sucking at snowmaking the first couple of years. Because uh, we were making snow and probably 50% of it would end up in the woods. Not where we wanted it. And that uh, man-made snow bunks the the base of those maple trees and i don't know if you know the science behind maple syrup but uh that that's a big advantage for us we got a lot of moisture on the ground it keeps the base of the tree cool the sun heats up the top and it's uh it's been a good really good business unit for us
1: so let's talk a little bit about your season passes your your pass prices are pretty affordable uh starts at 4.99 uh, this for a for a, an adult pass, and the uh, children's passes are cheaper, of course. That's bumped up now to five forty nine. If you missed the early bird price, that's a pretty good price for a mountain of that size. Talk about your philosophy here behind season pass pricing, Bruce. So the adult
0: pass is one thing, Stuart, but you know we sell uh, the the brunt of our passes are family of four passes. You know that we sell uh, a preponderance of family of four passes, and those are fourteen hundred and ninety nine dollars. So you can do the math. You know that's dad skiing, mom skiing, and two kids skiing all all season for fourteen hundred ninety nine dollars with no blackout dates, n- no hassles really. So uh, as for our philosophy, we live here. You know the area has been very good to my family. There's a lot of people here that uh, that have supported us, and it's it's a really a, a blue collar town and you know, we want to offer blue collar passes.
1: So following the COVID shutdown last year, a lot of skiers offered some kind of deferral or refund policy in case COVID shut down the mountain again. As far as I am aware, Titus did not. I guess my first question for you is, do I have that wrong? Did you offer your skiers some kind of protection plan? And if not, talk about the decision not to outline some kind of policy like that and whether your skiers were asking for it.
0: No, you know, last year we were bombarded with, are you going to open? Are you going to open? Will I get my money back? And we let everybody know without a shadow of a doubt that, yes, if there was no skiing, you're going to get your money back. There's, you know, that's, that's not an issue. And uh, as you know, we opened. And mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> for instance, the Canadians, the, the Canadian passes that we s- sold, Stuart, the border was closed. They couldn't come down to a person every single canadian we had that bought a pass said hey titus we're worried about you as much as uh, us we want you there for when we can get back over the border let's just defer our passes till next year not a single one of them asked for a refund they just wanted the ability to ski this upcoming season that's that's pretty special
1: well, that's remarkable. And I, I stand corrected on my statement that Titus did not offer that. I, I I think it was maybe not on a place I saw it on the website. So it sounds like that worked out really well for you. Um, let's talk about Canada for a moment because the Canadian border was closed to non-essential travel all winter, which means folks could not get back and forth to ski. This was a big problem for Jay Peak and some of the other ski areas in Northern Vermont. And Jay actually relies on Canada for up to half of its business. So talk about how important Canada is to you, Bruce, and how much did that hurt you that that border was closed this season? Well,
0: uh, it could have hurt us a lot more if we wouldn't wouldn't have had the uh, fact that Vermont was closed and Colorado was closed. But the border for the U.S. and Canada is still closed to this day, you, you know, to non-essential travel. And uh, we just there was no Canadians at the mountain at all this entire season. And uh, they're usually 35, 40% of our business are Canadians just because we're very close to some big population centers in Canada. And they come down. They've got second homes here. We've got some Canadians on the mountain that have built beautiful second homes. So, uh, you know, it's their little vacation getaway. And I just feel so sorry for these people that have not been able to use them uh, for an entire year now, a little over a year.
1: Well, hopefully they can get back next season because I know that's a very important part of the business for a lot of northern ski areas. Uh, another casualty of COVID was this little known um, ski card, multi-ski card called the Champlain Valley Ski Card. And it, it, it gave you a day each to Mad River Glen and Burke and uh, Gore and Whiteface and Titus was on it. Um, it. It They only sold maybe 300 of these and, and I would pick one up once in a while. And I don't know if if COVID killed that thing for good. Because it wasn't offered last year, or or if it'll make a comeback. But talk about that card and why that made sense for Titus.
0: So that card was uh, a byproduct of a, a local television station. It's an advertising. I don't want to call it gimmick, but it's an advertising uh, setup. It, they, you don't. The mountain does not get anything for anybody who shows up ever with that card. They advertise. Titus Mountain on that pass and they advertise it uh, you know, at the five o'clock news and different times during the day, buy a ski pass, the station sells the ski passes, they get all the money, you get advertising in return.
1: Would you consider rejoining if that pass came along? Came back. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Positively. We've joined that every year because, uh, you know, as you said, we need, we need some exposure. Titus needs a little bit of exposure and that's why we signed up for it in the first
1: place. Would you consider a partnership with IndyPass or or another coalition that came along? IndyPass, I think is the most likely. Yeah. We sent an email in 2019 to
0: IndyPass and said, Hey, this looks like this might be something right up our alley. And they, they had made the determination that they were set for that season we haven't heard anything
1: back. All right. Well, hopefully you can get that conversation going again because I think it would be a terrific ad. It's it's a it's it really uh fits right in with the spirit of that pass. Well, cramming for this interview, I uh I I checked the email files, so I've got
0: their contact information and I plan on doing that.
1: Yeah, and, and uh West Mountain just joined and and actually West would pair quite well with Titus because you're both in that same corridor. I, I know that it's quite far, but nonetheless, you, you could do a weekend at Titus and some day trips to, to West. If you were uh, you know, capital region or, or, you know, Saratoga Springs or somewhere else down there. Exactly. So let's talk about Liftopia, Bruce. Uh, last year, Liftopia suddenly stopped paying its partners. Um, so, so let's start there. Uh, so COVID happened. Um, obviously, Everything in the world shut down. All the scariest shut down. Everyone lost a lot of money. I, I don't think anyone was surprised by a little pause and saying like, "What's going on?" Because I think the sky seemed like it was falling at the time. Um, but let's just rewind a little bit. How long had you partnered with L- Liftopia, and what was that relationship like up to March 2020?
0: We started uh, 2000 the 2013 ski season, ski season with Liftopia. And up until 2020, it had been on autopilot, basically. It was just, uh, it was a good partnership for them. It was a good partnership for us and everything worked.
1: So you had no issues getting paid ever? Up Never
0: had an issue getting paid until April 11th, 2020. And uh, you're right. There were there were signs in other of our businesses, uh, you know, <clears throat> people they they get nervous right off the bat and they start maybe making decisions that they shouldn't. And we were seeing a little bit of that in some of our, our other companies. And so we were paying attention for that liftopia check to hit April 10th. And when it didn't get there, the uh, 11th, I made a call to, to liftopia and was told that, well, our credit card processors a little bit jammed up this time at this time, you know, they're worried what's going to happen if the mountains can't honor the, the products. And so made sense to me, you know, uh, I got that. I understood that they were working their way through it. And uh, as time went on, we would have an answer.
1: How much did Lyftopia owe you?
0: Just shy of 50 grand, 49,000 and change. March was uh, a big month for us. Because, uh, you know, we'd offer our season's pass sale and the Canadians, that was typically the time of year Canadians would would pick up on it. So you could ski the rest of that year for free and then all of the next year. And it was a very popular product and they like to be able to buy it right on Liftopia because they would use their credit card to, you know, stretch the payment out another 30 days or whatever. But that's why the total was happened to be that
1: high that month. So lay this out for us. Liftopia, uh, a lot of people may not be aware, actually had two services, right? You have the public facing service, which is liftopia.com, which is what most of us are familiar with. We go there, we buy lift tickets. They also had cloud store, which was the backend service that if I go to Titus.com, TitusMountain.com, to your website, you would plug in cloud store and that is your e-store, right? So did you, which of those liftopia services did you use one or the other or both? So we use them
0: both, but 95% of what we sold went through the Titus Mountain website. People just went to Titus Mountain, buy tickets, bang. So it was, again, you're, you're right, we're remote. Uh, people that were going to ski at Titus knew they were going to ski at Titus. They weren't going to Liftopia to see what were the better deals. So literally 95% of our business came from uh, our, our website, but through their platform.
1: And the money they owed you, was that through Cloud Store or Lyftopia.com or both?
0: It was it was through our cloud store. Again, 95% of it. There was a little bit there maybe from uh com, but the brunt of the money they owed us was for uh the Titus Mountain Cloud Store.
1: So l- l- let me just state this as clearly as possible how I understand it and 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 you tell me if if this is right or not. So you're telling me that last March it, it, skiers went to TitusMountain.com. They bought a season pass for Titus for the 2020 to 21 ski season. Liftopia never gave you that money. So the the, the passes that these skiers bought that they thought was going to support your independent mountain was, was basically, you never got it. They got their season pass, but you never got the money. Is that right?
0: That is correct. And, uh, you know,
1: they did they were
0: buying through the Titus Mountain website. They, they looked at Titus Mountain as the vendor, and we made a decision the instant we knew we were screwed that uh, we were not going to hold this against the customer. We were not going to ask them to go back to their credit card company, and we were going to honor these uh, passes that uh, were sold through our website on the Liftopia platform. So
1: the, the business model to me the, the way I understood it is let's say I go and spend a hundred dollars on TitusMountain.com, Right. And, and Lifetopia would take a, a processing fee because they are running that technology. So they, they take, let's say it's 10%. So they would take $10 and they would forward you 90. Right. So they, they take that 10 as, as uh, as sort of like to support their operations and run their business. Um, so if I have that right, and if that's your understanding as well, did you ever get an explanation for what happened to that money? Be- because their, their percentage is not huge. It was 10, 15%. So did, did they ever explain it like where it went?
0: Yeah. Since the brunt of the sales were through our own website, uh, they got us for 7%. Uh, 3% of that went to the credit card company, which we would have to pay no matter how we ran our credit cards. So uh, that seems fair. I'm sure they got a discount from the processors, but yeah, That was covered in the transaction fee. And then 4% went to them. And so, you know, our seasons passes, we negotiated a 1% rate. So they took the credit card fee and 1%. And, you know, we lost all we lost the other 99% uh, trying to get ourselves a good deal. But the explanation we were given was that uh, the processors, the credit card processors, and this was very, very early on, and I dealt with Evan myself, and I believed believe that uh, the processors were hitting pause because they were worried that they were selling passes for Altera and wherever else they were going, and there was not going to be any skiing open next year, and they were going to have to refund it. And so they were building reserves. they were holding back the money to liftopia to cover that and uh you know that was the story that we had for the first few initial months
1: yeah and I was hearing the same but after a while it it's it had to become apparent this money was was not coming through when did that become clear to you
0: well uh it it was apparent to us rather early on that I, you know, we have credit card processors like stupid at all of our other businesses. And so we're asking a few of them. They're like, that that doesn't necessarily sound so kosher. I don't know anything about ski business, but we got the customer's money. I mean, we, we whack somebody's credit card. We, we get the money from them. So, uh, we started wondering, you know, Hey, wait a minute here, what's going on. And then, well, we were going to sell. I did get the sense that, uh, You know, Lyftopia was humming along. They had a big business model. They were pulling in a lot of money, even though the percentage was was small. There was still a big nut coming, and when you're used to running a company on a hundred thousand dollars a week nut, if it goes down to to five thousand dollars, it'll jam you up in a hurry.
1: Yeah, something is just not adding up for me about any explanation I've seen from Liftopia. And and a a lot of the ski industry seems to be of the same mind. And in fact, last June, a coalition of four resort operators, Aspen, uh, Boeing, Dia, their Cypress resort out in British Columbia, Altera, and Arapahoe Basin, tried to force Liftopia into involuntary bankruptcy. And what that would have done is forced Liftopia to open its books and show what happened to the money. Um, That ultimately was dismissed on a technicality but what was your reaction to that move when you saw this lawsuit was filed by these four operators
0: well i knew instantly the jig was up it was over because uh you know they were dealing now liftopia is not dealing with some uh, country bumpkin in malone new york they're dealing with some big boys who play for keeps and as soon as it went legal my brothers and i knew that "Uh uh-oh see you later we can kiss that 50 grand goodbye
1: Mm. So ultimately, after that case was dismissed, a European company called ski bought Liftopia. What was Evan's message to you? Evan Reese, the, the CEO of, of Liftopia, now CEO of Catalyte. What was Evan's message to you after ski bought them? In
0: between the suit by Altera and uh, ski there was talks about somebody else, I guess, buying Liftopia and buying the whole thing. And uh, we were holding out hope for that, which obviously never materialized. And then, uh, yes, we found out that SkiTude, who is a well-funded European technology company, they obviously are not well-funded enough to pay these poor little independent ski areas that they put the knuckles to. But uh, they were going to come back and they were going to come up with a plan. And... uh, You know, they were going to try and make things right by uh, the ski area operators. And as you know, their plan, I don't think anybody really took it.
1: So Liftopia was recently constituted, as we mentioned, as Cataly. And the company says that everyone who was owed money had an opportunity put in for a claim, which would essentially divide the money ski to to paid for Liftopia among all the partners who were owed money. Did Titus put in a claim?
0: Yes, we put in a claim.
1: First very long time ago we put in a claim. And and you I I believe is it July that they're going to you're gonna find out how much you'll actually get?
0: Yes. Yes. And uh I got a feeling we're gonna end up with one of those large pitchers of beer and free pizzas we're talking about.
1: <laughs> I hope it's more than that. Uh Catalaid has said, Bruce, that they will look to fully repay partners who agree to work with them. What is your reaction to that offer?
0: No. I mean uh You know, they first of all, whatever is paid in the claim, okay, they're going to keep that too. So that just, that's sort of really kicking somebody where the sun doesn't shine, in my personal opinion. They're going to try and make us whole under conditions that they that they dictate. Uh, They were going to give us 50% of the money that we were owed from March of 2020 when we signed up to do business with them going forward. And then when our cloud store was approved and live, they were going to give us the other 50%. So uh, we declined their offer, and uh, that's it. I haven't talked to anybody
1: since. I have to imagine, Bruce, that there's a sense of betrayal here and that you trusted Liftopia for so long Then they pull the rug out from under you. And, and this is a pretty important part of your business. It's your e-commerce. It's it's really where you're, you're counting on skiers and skiers are counting on being able to go there, buy something and you get the money. And I think everyone understands there's there's some part that gets carved off for processing and that's just part of the modern world. Um, now, it seems like they're essentially trying to blackmail you to get your money back that's my perception. How do you feel about it? And I know you said you wouldn't swear, but feel free.
0: Oh, it's, that's exactly right. I mean, it was, uh, if, if we were desperate and it was between that and making the mortgage payment, maybe. And I got to be honest with you, if I did that deal, this cat in particular would be work, would be, uh, coming up with any way I could to even the, even the score going forward, if you know what I mean. So, uh, I unfortunately, my brothers and I have been we we've we've had this situation happen in other you know other areas. People have sometimes don't pay you what you're owed, and you get a little jaundiced to that. But this was the ski business. Everybody else in the ski business worked so hard to help Titus. They worked so hard to uh, you know keep us in business and make us a better business. They everybody really. It's a fraternity, unlike any other industry I've ever seen. And so when Liftopia, who was a big partner of ours in that fraternity, put the knuckles to us, it it did. It felt like you were betrayed.
1: So Evan Reese, who was the founder and CEO of, of Liftopia, is now the CEO for Catalate. I was pretty surprised by that move. How do you feel about that?
0: I met Evan in Savannah, Georgia, at the
1: ski show on a boat that
0: was going over to uh, the city, and he seemed like a nice guy. I'd watched his interview on CNBC the year before. He had a good model. You know, I felt that I'd put my saddle on the right horse, and even uh, up until recently, you know, he, he's he's been saying this has not been a real good move for him personally. He lost everything, and I feel bad if that happened. I mean, no – You know, but uh, that's not my fault. And I was giving them the benefit of the doubt for a very long time. And then my children, who were even more offended that this could happen in 2020, how does a company screw you out of credit card transactions that were for Titus Mountain? They did a little bit of digging. And that's the kind of stuff I was uh, sending to you on my email.
1: Yeah, and and I'm going to look into that. A little bit soon, Bruce. Uh, If anyone is considering working with Cadillac, do you have a message for them?
0: Well, if they're looking to Titus for guidance, uh, we said no.
1: And and who are you working with now? Because you do still sell tickets online. I know because I bought one. My
0: son, uh, my namesake, actually, he's Bruce as well. He's, he's younger, he's 27, he's as passionate about this business as, as any, he's, he's like a little like Stuart Winchester, he really <laughs> dives into it seven days a week, and uh, he found a company called The Only Sky, and uh, I can tell you, uh, with a season under our books, it was the best blessing in disguise that Liftopia put the knuckles to us for 50 grand because this platform was five star as far as our entire staff was concerned.
1: Nice. Really glad you found uh, found a replacement for that, Bruce, and hope that works out well for you in the future. So before I let you go, we got to talk about Skibanas, and I think that's a good place to uh, lighten the mood a little bit. Those are awesome. So so you built these little uh, sheds, basically heated, Uh, right above your beginner lift there. So people could have private base lodges during COVID. Talk about those. So it was the Amish that built them. We have had
0: an influx of Amish up here and they love to ski those guys. They really do. Yeah. So uh, we designed that little building and we picked those colors and we decided to insulate them and finish them off. And we put electricity in there and patio furniture that we bought, you know, uh, from amazon in november in malone new york so we got a pretty good deal you know uh some shelves in there and it's basically the mom has got her own little fiefdom the money we've made just on returnable beer cans from those ski bandas has been incredible (laughs) because people bring their own food their own beer they just like to camp out there and have a good time
1: and will the ski bond stick around
0: oh they're not only going to stick around i we think we may We may add a few more, you know, the ski banner, of the space was one thing, Stuart, but if you rented one and you were coming up with your daughter, your two lift tickets would be waiting for you in the ski banner when you got there, along with a key to the private bathroom that was just around the corner. And uh, if your daughter needed rentals, if it was a set of skis or snowboard, that would be waiting for you in the ski banner when you got there, you pull your car up right directly behind the little building. And, you, you, you know, it's, it's just a good setup all the way around. And they were very, very popular this year.
1: Uh, it's beautiful. Those, those were a great idea. Well, Bruce, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I, uh, I can't wait to get back up to Titus next season. I really wish you the best in recovering from uh, this whole Liftopia ordeal. It it sounds like you do, and you have a really great team and family around you to help you get through that. So thank you very much, and best of luck to you. Thank you very much, Stuart. It was nice talking to you. That's Bruce Moynet Jr., co-owner of Titus Mountain, New York. Man, that hurts listening to that. If you're a tightest season pass holder and you bought your pass online last March, how pissed are you if the mountain didn't get a dime of that money? Man, I would be hot. That is a really raw deal. Listening to that guy, how much do you want to support that ski area? That is a true family-run operation. I really hope Topia or Catalate or whatever they are I can make that right somehow. Thank you, Bruce, for being so candid about all of that. It's actually the first time I've spoken to a ski area operator on the podcast about the Liftopia hose job. So thank you for sharing that, Bruce. And thank you all for listening. If you like this podcast, do one thing for me, since it's free. Subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at StormSkiing.com. Look, I don't care if you're already subscribed on iTunes or Spotify. The podcast is a small part of the storm. There's a whole lot more content in the newsletter. And don't forget to follow the storm on Twitter. At Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm
0: Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.